Well, Chris is uh, leading the children's message, and I'm, I'm looking at this pile of pictures of people who exhibit badness, and eventually Jesus who exhibits goodness, and it's going down and down and down. And then I notice the last picture is someone without a lot of hair. Chris, I was a little nervous uh, as you got to that last picture, but thank you for sharing that message with us. Uh, would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, may the words of my mouth... May the thoughts and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I'm curious, have you ever noticed uh, the way that kids will see things uh, that you just don't notice as an adult? It's, uh, it's something that I've, uh, I've been regularly reminded of, uh, both in my ministry as a pastor, uh, but also in my, uh, my role as a dad. And as, uh, as we get started today, I want to share two examples of, uh, of what this looks like. And the first comes from my role as a dad, a dad of uh, two kids under four. And it has to do with something that you'll see uh, if you head out those doors and then walk up and down the street. Something and that something isn't a sidewalk, that something isn't a stoop, and it's not a bunch of flowers, plants, or trees. That something uh, is two little pipes that go into every single house that you'll pass as you go up and down the street. A gas pipe and a water pipe. And, uh, and if it were for my two boys, I'm not sure that I'd ever notice. You see, as we walk up and down the street, I'll hear something like this. Another one. I see another one. And we made it into this, uh, this sort of game. Uh, we try to figure out which ones are which. And if, if you want a hint, uh, the blue ones are for water and, and the yellow ones are for gas, but they're not always the same size. They're not always marked. But if you happen to have a little kid with you, you might just notice. So that's the first example. The second example comes from my ministry as a pastor. And uh, I may have told this story before. You see, in my, uh, my former congregation, we had a preschool. And uh, because we had a preschool, I regularly had the opportunity uh, to lead chapel for a bunch of kids. And, and when I did, I'd have the kids sit right up close, right in front. And, uh, and our preschool director, she would light a couple of candles that we had on a, a little altar for them. And then we'd sing a couple of songs. I'd share a story or a message about Jesus. And then they'd head back to their class, uh, which brings us to this time I'm teaching chapel about Jesus' disciples. Now, the 12 men, the 12 friends uh, who followed Jesus. And, and what you need to know about my former congregation is that we had these plaques on the back wall of our sanctuary. We had 12 plaques, one for every one of Jesus' uh, disciples. And, uh, and since I was teaching about Jesus' disciples, I thought it'd be a really good idea to have the kids, instead of sitting up front, to sit in back. You know, almost five years later, uh, when I think about this, I realized it was, uh, it was probably a stretch to think that I would be teaching them about Jesus' disciples, and then I'd have them turn around, they'd look up at those plaques, and then they'd have this big aha moment. And so you can probably imagine my surprise when that's exactly what happens. A little boy in our fours class, he looks up and goes, Whoa! That one's got swords! Now, if I'm honest, I don't really remember what happens next. 
Uh, It takes a while to get things back under control. Eventually, kids head back to their class, and there I am, standing in the back of our sanctuary, looking up at those plaques, and all I can think is, I just wanted to show them something they hadn't noticed. Yeah, kids, kids have this way of, of seeing things that you don't notice as an adult. See, what I, I, I didn't have the heart or the words to tell that little boy uh, in the fours class is that, uh, that those swords, they didn't belong to the disciple on whose plaque they were placed. They belonged to the man who, who skinned that disciple alive. You know, when you, uh, when you looked at the, the set of plaques in the back wall of our sanctuary, there were a bunch of swords, or a bunch of uh, weapons on them. Uh, one of them had a, a pile of sticks that was lit on fire. Another had a, a bow and arrow. There was a spear, a couple of crosses, and then three, maybe four of them had different sets of swords on them. You see, they, they all pointed uh, to the cost of being a disciple, something that those kids noticed probably without even realizing it. You see, those plaques, uh, I think they explain two things uh, that we just heard in our reading from 1 Peter. See, first, they explain why Peter begins this reading by saying, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised by the fiery trials that you are now suffering because these kinds of trials... They weren't a surprise to the first Christians. You see, the second thing that they, uh, they point out, they explain, uh, they give witness to is Jesus. Jesus uh, who suffered, Jesus who suffered for them, and Jesus who suffered for us, and, and Jesus who enabled them to entrust everything they had, their whole lives, to their faithful creator so that they could continue to do good. Have you ever noticed the way that kids will see things you just don't notice as an adult? See, it's with with those few things in mind uh, that today we begin to wrap up our uh, sermon series on 1 Peter. At this point, what I imagine most of you know is that 1 Peter is written to a bunch of brand new Christians, and they, along with their congregation, are pretty strange because they followed Jesus. And, you know, when you dig into this letter, what you learn is that uh, most of them don't experience the kind of fiery trials uh, that you see in the plaques on the back wall of my former congregation. At least they don't face them regularly. But what we do know is that they are seen as outsiders in society, and and it's just a couple of years, one, two, maybe three years after Peter writes this letter, uh, that a rather significant fire breaks out in the city of Rome, and uh, the emperor at the time, a man named Nero, he blames this fire on on a group of Christians living in the city, and it's at that point that Christians in Rome and and also Christians uh, throughout the ancient world begin to face quite a bit of persecution. You see, what we've uh, learned is that this is why Peter does what he does in this letter. You see, first he reminds the people who hear it uh, of the hope they have. You have been given a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And second, uh, Jesus shows the people who hear this letter how they're supposed to live, how they're supposed to live in a world where they're outsiders, where they're strange, where they don't completely fit in because they have pledged their allegiance to Jesus and no one else. And third, uh, he goes on to encourage those who hear this letter to keep doing good. To keep doing good even when people don't treat them in ways that are fair or just or right. And he tells them to do this because people might see their good deeds. And because they see their good deeds, they might go on to glorify God. So that brings us uh, to today's reading from uh, 1 Peter chapter 4 and 5. And uh, you might remember that a uh, time or two I've said that, that this letter uh, actually looks a lot like a sermon. And it, it doesn't look like any uh, sermon. It looks like a, a confirmation sermon. And any good confirmation sermon always has two groups of people in mind. You see, first, you've got the, the confirmands. And, uh, and in this letter, uh, that's the group of brand new Christians that have just been baptized. You can imagine them sitting right in front. And, and for most of this letter, Peter is speaking to them. But any com- a good confirmation sermon always has two groups of people in mind, and the second group of people is, is the people sitting behind them. And, and in this letter, that's the rest of the congregation, the rest of the congregations in Asia Minor. And uh, many scholars believe that today's reading, that starts in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, many scholars believe uh, that this reading marks a transition. A transition uh, from an address to the confirmands to an address to the rest of the congregation. And so it's no longer about uh, the set of basics uh, that, that a brand new Christian needs to know to live the Christian life. It's about the everyday challenges and experiences that the rest of the people in the congregation are facing. Those everyday challenges and experiences, what we learn today, they involve suffering. Now, one of the things that uh, Martin Luther, a man who, uh, who lived about 1,500 years after this letter was written, one of the things that Martin Luther is known for uh, is, is making the faith accessible uh, to, to everyday people. And, and what many of you may know is that one of the ways he did this was by, uh, by bringing the language of the faith uh, to everyday Christians. He, he takes the Latin Mass and the Latin Bible, and he, he produces the, the German Bible and the German Mass. But what many of you may not know uh, is uh, the very first thing he translated uh, in making the faith accessible uh, was the rite of baptism. These are the words that are spoken uh, every time uh, someone is baptized. And, and if you dig into Luther's works, it's a set of 60-some books that contain some of the things that Luther wrote that, that also happen to be translated into English. If you, uh, if you dig into Luther's works, you can actually figure out uh, and learn why this is the first thing that he translated for the everyday people, and it's so that they would appreciate the seriousness of what happens in baptism. Because something rather significant happens when you baptize someone into Christ. And this is the way he describes it. I want to read it for you this morning. He says, uh, Remember that in baptism, 
we confess that the one being baptized is possessed by the devil. Yikes. It's possessed by the devil and a child of sin and wrath. But then he goes on to write this. Remember also that it is no joke to take sides against the devil and not only drive the devil away, but to also burden the person being baptized with such a mighty and lifelong enemy. A mighty and lifelong enemy. You see, when you are baptized into Christ, and just like those brand new Christians in Asia Minor, when you're baptized into Christ, you have a brand new, lifelong enemy. You see, what Luther reminds us is that this enemy, this enemy isn't, uh, isn't the world all around us. This enemy isn't the person who, who disagrees with what we think or what we believe. This, this enemy is Satan. He goes on to say that he is out to get you and that he wants to stop you. And so when you experience suffering, this is why Peter says, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the, the fiery trials that you are enduring. Instead, Peter says, uh, rejoice. Not you, but this is, uh, this is the part of Peter's reading from today that uh, I don't always know what to do with the first time I read it. And why on earth would someone rejoice in their sufferings? See, the answer that Peter shows us is that when we experience suffering, it simply points us to Jesus. Jesus who suffered for us, Jesus who died for us, and Jesus who rose again so that one day we might too. You see, it's so easy to, to place our hope, to rejoice in, in the wrong things, but when we suffer, we have an opportunity to remember the hope we really have. We have an opportunity to, to fix our eyes on Jesus and rejoice in the fact that, that life isn't all about an easy life. Life isn't all about freedom from suffering. It's about Jesus. The one who, who really does satisfy our every single need. When we suffer, we have an opportunity to remember that. And so Peter writes, do not be surprised, but rejoice. Now for the past six weeks as we've been uh, making our way through this letter, I've also been thinking a lot about the transition that goes on in Peter's life. Now, the transition that takes place from Good Friday to Easter. See, on Good Friday, uh, Peter finds himself in a courtyard outside of the place where Jesus is being interrogated and persecuted. And, uh, and someone, actually a group of people, ask him if, if they know who Jesus is. And, and Peter says, I don't know the man. But then three days later, you find Jesus, or Peter, hearing the good news. You, you hear him running towards the empty tomb, and then in a story that starts that day and that continues the rest of his life, 30, 35 years, 
he is sharing that good news, risking his life to do so. See, he does that uh, until the day that, uh, that he finds himself in Rome. It's a couple years after this, this letter is written, and, uh, and he is put to death. And Peter is uh, he's put to death on a cross, just like Jesus, uh, but uh, he is unwilling to receive the glory, the honor that his Lord received, and so he asks to be crucified upside down. So I've been thinking a lot about the transition that Peter goes through during his life, especially the transition he goes through from Good Friday to Easter. A man who is uh, reluctant and almost unwilling to identify with Jesus to a man who is unwilling to die in the same way he did because it gives him too much honor. What strikes me is that uh, the thing that makes this possible is the good news. The good news that the one who once was dead has now arisen. You see, it's that good news that changes everything in Peter's life, and it changes everything in the lives of people like you and me, because we have hope. And what Peter shows us is that we are set apart, but we are not just set apart for ourselves. We are set apart with a purpose. We are set apart for a world that God so dearly loves, and and we may face trials and temptations. We will face trials and temptations. It's the life of a Christian. But you see, these things don't get the last word in our lives. Only Jesus gets the last word in our lives. And the last word in our lives is the last word of the one who is now arisen. But that last word is the last word that is spoken to us. You see, it's this last word, this good news, that enables people like Peter and the other disciples to, to head out with confidence and and courage to face swords and and upside-down crosses, things that would for us seem absolutely unimaginable. And yet they do it. They face these things because of Jesus. They are able to entrust their whole lives, everything they have, to him. And then they're able to continue to do good. You see, it's the same thing that enables us to do the same, to face all of our todays, to face all of our tomorrows, to face all of it with confidence and with courage because of who Jesus is and what he's done for people like you and me. And so if, uh, if you take anything away from our time in First Peter, I, I hope it's that. You, you are set apart You aren't set apart for yourselves. You're set apart with a purpose for a world that God so dearly loves. And you, you can entrust your whole lives to Jesus. Just like he entrusts his life to his Father, our faithful creator who is also faithful to us. May God grant that to you for Jesus' sake. Amen. And I may the peace of God which surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.